Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Uh, here in just a bit. Um, While you're turning something to pass along, um, one of the things we're going to be doing this uh, Christmas is um, we're going to be sending kind of a care package to the Hickey family. Uh, If you're new with us, uh, the Hickeys is a family from our church that has gone out to do missions. And so they're currently over in Scotland uh, doing some church planting. This is going to be their first Christmas uh, away from home. That's got kind of a, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing for them. Logan losing his father and things this year. So we're wanting to send some encouragement, strength and comforting to them. So we're going to put together a care package and send it over uh, to them. So one of the things we're asking is if you would um, uh, give a Christmas card, um, hand it to me or my wife, something, we're gonna put it all together. There's also some other things. Uh, TJ and Holly got a hold of um, uh, the Hickeys and asked them, is there anything from America you guys can't get a hold of that you're missing? And so they actually did give some candies and some gums and some chips, you know, small things that they would survive without them, you know, but the kinds of things that would be uh, kind of a, just a delightful thing and a gift if we send over to them. So we're going to be compiling some of those things and sending that over. I don't know what all that list is. Some of that will get out to you. But for now, uh, if you will please, notes of encouragement letters, even coloring pages that your kids do for them. Um, And Christmas cards, we think especially would be encouraging their first Christmas, open it up. And there's all these Christmas cards from their church family uh, here in the States. So uh, please make note of that. Get that to me. I'm intending to try to get that sent out by the end of the first week of December. So please, as quickly as possible, get those things in. Romans chapter 11 Let's read beginning in verse 11 and we'll read down to verse 24 and then we'll pray here in just a bit. So verse 11, what what is happening here? The subject is what God is doing among all of the people, groups and nations of the earth. How he is saving souls from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. But the question is asked, well, what is God doing with the nation of Israel? Because we see that God had chosen them for some special things, chapter 11 is really looking at this and how that ties into God saving all of the non-Jewish people, souls out of the non-Jewish people groups of the earth. So we're, we're thinking about the, that, that nation and how it pertains to uh, us Gentiles, from the earth. And so the, the they that you're going to see there in verse 11, that is referring to the people of Israel. So follow along with me. Verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then here's where we pick up for today's sermon, verse 16. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive, that's, that's referring to Gentile Christians, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, 
God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Lord, we pray, magnify your name in this time. We pray by showing us more of the truths of what you have done to save souls. Uh, to, to, to bring, uh, bring more to yourself, to grant eternal life. Father, we ask that you'll bless this time. We pray for our little ones in the next room learning your word. We pray that you will bless them. And God, we ask that you will bless us here. Um, Lord, we, we know that we have temptations to be distracted and think about a hundred other things. And um, Lord, we pray, give us the ability to deeply pay attention. And Lord, that you will... Take captive our thoughts, our affections. Stir us, O oh Lord. Show us your truths, and we pray, show us the weight of them. Show us why they matter. Show us their glory. Show us what you have done in your Son. And Father, I pray that we would be in encouraged, strengthened, also convicted and challenged, transformed, sanctified. Lord, any in, in the room who are hearing this this morning that has never turned to Christ, never uh, entrusted themselves to you and bowed the knee to you in truth. God, we pray that this would be the time that it happens. So Lord, we pray, please come and bless. Lord, what I need to do to be able to, to Preach in a way that's faithful. Help me in this task, every part of it. And all of us, Lord, as we receive your word, we pray that we will truly worship by humbly hearing, believing, heeding, obeying, and living transformed because of it. So, oh God, we pray, bless and protect this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side um, have a pretty remarkable tree on, on their, their property. Uh, this tree is, is kind of the iconic tree of what, what we affectionately call the farm. Um, so, so for us and the family, we, we have a, a lot of affection for this piece of ground that they live on. My grandma was born in the farmhouse in the upstairs bedroom there, and we, we affectionately call it the farm. And this tree is, is like the one uh, notable feature that even visitors who come to the property, they really notice. As you drive up the lane, you've got the farmhouse on your right, and there on the left is this pretty remarkable tree. The tree is a, um, it's a mulberry which is not generally a highly desirable kind of tree, but this one is, you know, mulberries are normally those scraggly little things that grow out of ditches and nobody really wants them. But this one is kind of notable. It's the largest I've ever seen. Um, three of us grown men could not put our arms around it and touch hands around it. It's leaning severely to one side. It's got a deep scar running down the trunk where it was struck by lightning before I was even born. And my grandma remembers as a little girl, her father doing something unique, something special with this tree. It's a red mulberry, which is the kind that you're used to, but he found a white mulberry tree and he sheared off a branch from it and he grafted it into this, this red mulberry. So grandma says this was done when she was a little girl. She's 91 now, so we can guess something around 80 years ago she remembers him wrapping the beeswax around the joint and then watching it as it grow. And over the years, kind of just post Great Depression, the family ate from this tree. You know, in our day, we're, we're not used to needing a tree to produce something. We, we mostly grow them for enjoyment and for fun and such. But throughout the history of the world, many people have needed their fruit trees to produce to a maximum potential simply to eat on. And her family, which was poor as she was growing up, they did need to eat off of it. And they had this kind of unique thing. That here became this massive mulberry tree and most of it produced these red berries, but there was one branch 
that would grow a bumper crop of these white mulberries. And so you had this tree that the majority of it is all one kind, but then there's, there's one branch that is different. The fruit has a different kind of taste, but now it's been united into a new life. It was taken off of something old, brought into something new and special. The people enjoyed the fruit from this. It's now brought into one tree with one set of roots. You know, if you're going to grow a tree to get maximum potential out of it, there's a certain amount of care you have to put into it. The tree has to be planted in a right kind of place. There, you have to tend it as it grows. Its tendency to want to grow crooked has to be straightened out. It needs to be pruned. But if you prune a tree in the wrong kind of way, you'll mess it up for life. You can over prune or under prune, but if you do it right, it increases its fruitfulness. But some of the point is to do it with excellence, you have to, um, to use an older word that is actually used in the King James several times. You have to husband the tree. To husband means to tend a vine, to care for a tree. And yes, there is a reason why the word husband is what is used as a man in relation to his wife. That's a sermon for another day. But in scripture, I'll start with the Old Testament here. Repeatedly, God used this as an illustration for what he was doing with the nation of Israel. There are passages that talk about that God planted Israel as a vine and then some other passages that describe that God planted Israel as a tree. And, and yes, even the olive tree is used in the Old Testament in Haggai and in Habakkuk. And, and God had uh, said that he would uh, husband the tree. He would care for it throughout the years. He would work to clean and fertilize and prune and care for it in order for it to bear fruit. You come to the New Testament and the New Testament picks up on this illustration, which, you know, wildly an illustration that began a thousand years before the New Testament was written. And Jesus picks up on the illustration. So, for instance, in John 15, the passage of scripture that we take our church name from, Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches in the King James. He goes on to say, and my father is the husbandman. He describes then every branch that bears fruit. He prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he shears it off and they're gathered up and burned in the fire. And so one of the things I'm wanting to point out is in our text here in Romans, as we come to this illustration of Israel as an olive tree, this is nothing new. This is nothing that just is sprung on us. This is something that had been being discussed that God had been uh, teaching on for more than a thousand years. But what we have here in Romans 11 is the last word, at least for this age, on this illustration that God began even back in the Old Testament. We're learning here that God is doing something still continuing on this tree called Israel, God is ensuring that the tree is going to bear fruit. It will flourish. God is seeing to it in his care for the tree that it is going to give him glory. It is going to bear flourishing fruit unto him. He is removing and he is adding he is removing unfruitful, disobedient, unbelieving branches. But then he is grafting branches into this tree. Branches that when they are joined and the life flows into the branches, they bear fruit even though, and this is part of the point of the text, the grafting that he is doing is abnormal. It is out of the ordinary but we are linked in to these roots that God has established and God has cared for. So I, I wanna walk us through this, this third point in the text, this third division of chapter 11, which gives us this metaphor of, of the tree and its branches. Um, where we have left off uh, last week, we considered point number two, which is Israel's rejection of Christ. 
has been God's occasion to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And we looked at three truths underneath that point, but we're ready to look at the fourth truth, um, uh, subpoint letter D there. If you've got uh, your bulletin with you, if you see the notes section there, I've kind of given you the outline. What's in bold is what we're hoping to cover today. Looking to cover quite a bit of ground uh, today. So we're, we're going to look at that final subpoint of the second point because it introduces this metaphor in the third division of the text. So let's begin there with uh, letter D, and it is the first of the dough and the root of the tree. If you look back to verse 16, as we start to walk through the whole passage here. So verse 16, read it again with me. He says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Now, before we can understand what he is saying in this verse, we, we have to get a handle on um, the principle that he's referencing here. He references a principle and then he applies it to this tree. So first, what is the principle here? The, the, the principle is one of these general principles of this world, one that's revealed in scripture, this biblical principle of the first fruits. Okay, so you, you may uh, recall this. The first fruits principle um, is one, uh, a lot of times when we think of it, we just immediately jump to money and we think of it there, which yeah, that, that is an application, but understand that the first fruits principle regards um, everything in life. And you know, throughout the law, uh, God applied it to all kinds of things. So uh, when a family had their firstborn, okay, they were to dedicate their firstborn unto the Lord. Okay, what, why was that? Aren't all of our children belong to God? Well, well yes. And the dedicating of the firstborn was a way of recognizing that all of my children are God's. If you dedicate the first, you consecrate the rest. You are making all of the rest of it. You are regarding it. You are treating it. You are showing all of the rest is God's. So this, this is applied all over the place. So you remember at the end of the Passover feast, one of the things that they would do is they would take the first sheaf of the grain and they would offer it to the Lord as a wave offering. And the idea, the concept was all of our grain, all of our crops are still out in the field. They're still there. You know, we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to eat. But we have taken the first of the grain that we have harvested and we are offering it unto God. We have not even tasted it. We are offering the first unto God. And, and as an act of worship, that offering the first and the best unto God, thereby consecrated all of the rest, meaning it set it apart unto God. So, so yeah, when it comes to money, yeah, the Bible does teach this as well. There's a reason why we don't wait till the end of the month and see what's left over and give a portion. Okay, what does scripture teach? The first, the best, before we taste any of it and go to anything else, the first is offered to God. We recognize every penny that we have, every penny in your pocket, every penny in your bank account, everything we have, it's all from him, through him, and to him. It's all come from God. Our lives are sustained by God and all of it, everything, your money, your kids, your house, your life, your time, Everything, it's all unto God. It belongs to God. It's for God. It's all for his glory. So how do we show that? How do we regard that? Well, one way is think of it, okay? But God gave a way that we are to demonstrate this, and that is the first fruits principle. The first is offered to God. The rest is consecrated and shown that it belongs to him. Okay, so that's the principle. Now, what does it have to do with the text here in this illustration? Well, remember the question that is being asked in chapter 11. The question being asked is, is God done with the people of Israel? Is, is he casting them away? Is he fed up because of the unbelief? Because remember, there has been widespread, re widespread rejection of Christ from the people. And so the question is, has God cast them away now that he's gone to save Gentiles and he's done with them? And the answer that's been given over and over again is, no, God is not done with them. And here is another way that this is shown and it is explained. What is said is, God is not done with that group. He consecrated the roots, the tree belongs to him. 
If the first piece of dough is holy, the whole lump is, it's all his. If the roots are holy, the whole tree belongs to God. That's what he is saying here. God consecrated the roots. Now, now what does that mean though, that he, he consecrated the roots? Well, part of what's being referred to there is, there was a time when the nation, the people of Israel did not exist, okay? And God planted the tree. God formed them into the nation. God came and God came to Abraham. Abram was uh, uh, not a godly man. He would remember he was an idol worship. He was not a good guy. And so God said, I want him. He was an evil man. And God came to him, drew him to himself, saved him, and then transformed Abraham into a godly man. God consecrated Abram to himself. The same with Isaac. Isaac wasn't an idol worshiper, but he wasn't born right with God. He was uh, uh, in the flesh, just as we are born sinners in the flesh. And God drew Isaac to himself, brought Isaac to a place of faith and trust. And Isaac became a believer. And then God made him holy. The same with Jacob, the same process. Through all of this, one of the things that is shown is is God is the one who formed them into a nation. He consecrated the roots. You come to Mount Sinai. What happens there? God enters into a covenant with the people. He makes them his people by entering into the covenant. And so in all of these ways, God created the roots. God planted the tree. And if he consecrated the roots, the tree belongs to him. But what we're gonna see now is that there are some mysterious and uncanny ways in God's purposes that he is making the tree holy. So this brings us to the third point, the tree of Israel. I see six truths here um, that, I, that I need to show you from uh, these verses, uh, 17 to 24. So I'm gonna do it in letters A through F. So let's start with letter A. Let's just talk for a bit about the metaphor here. Let's ask a couple questions to try to understand the illustration that's used. So, so first, in the metaphor, what is the tree? The tree is a metaphor representing the people of God, the people of God. But when we say that, we have to clarify some things because we've been learning in chapters 9, 10, and 11 that there are two categories of the people of God. One of those categories is physical Israel. People from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that people group of the Jews, okay? So there are ways that God calls them his, my possession. They belong to him. God is doing special things. But then there is another group that are called the people of God. And these are those from every tribe, every tongue, regardless of ethnicity, male, female, slave, free, every tax bracket, doesn't matter. Those who are right with God because they have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And so that is the people of God in truth. And one of the things that Romans 9 taught us is that group of people is the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, the, those who are Jews indeed, all kinds of language we saw the Bible use there. So which of these is it referring to? The tree represents the people of God, those who are in Christ, who possess eternal life because they are safe, having been forgiven of their sins, born again, truly justified. So that would include you in this room, you who have trusted in Christ, you have turned to him for salvation and you are genuinely in Christ. If you are attached to Christ, you are attached to this tree, the true Israel. And now the next question, and I've already kind of given it away, but I do want to explore it so for you to consider it. And, and, and that is the question, what do we call the tree? What do we call the tree? Well, I think the text makes clear I think it's said over and over again that it is shown here. Who have we been talking about? Israel. The tree is called Israel. Okay, verse, six, verse 16. He says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. Who's the first piece of dough? Well, we saw the origins of Israel. So who's the tree? Israel. If the root is holy, the branches are too. Who are the roots? We saw that. 
That's the origins of Israel. So what's the tree called? The tree is called Israel, but it is true Israel. This is a tree representing those who will be in heaven, in the kingdom of God, having eternal life. And a massive reveal in the new covenant. Massive reveal. One of the, one of the things that was just a, 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 a controversial in the early church and such. Big reveal. Gentiles. That is the non-Jewish peoples of the earth who trust in Christ are brought into the tree. Made a part of this tree. But then notice this also, still thinking about the metaphor in general. There's something abnormal. There's something out of the ordinary that God is doing in all of this. A um, little bit of tree knowledge. If you have a prosperous, flourishing tree, it's a, it's a good idea to uh, propagate that tree. But to propagate the tree, there are um, some ways of doing it. What, one of the ways of doing that is you can take some of the fruit from the tree, you can dry it out, gather the seeds, and you can plant the seeds. But that does not guarantee that the tree that is grown from the seed will have the same characteristics as the parent tree, okay? Just as you may not have the exact same height and weight and hair color and eye color, those kinds of things as your parent, okay? Uh, it may be the case that you have a father who's at retirement age and he has a full head of hair while you lose yours in your 30s. I hear that happens to some people, okay? You do not have the exact same DNA as the parent that you come from. But with trees, there is something you can do to have the exact DNA. And it is to graft a branch. You can take a branch off of a prosperous, flourishing tree. You can graft it onto a different tree and that branch retains the DNA and, and oftentimes, you know, all things and other things being equal will flourish and bear fruit. But if you notice in the illustration here of Romans 11, that's not what God is doing. He's doing the exact opposite. God is taking branches off of wild olive trees. So that, that's kind of a, an illustration for, you know, I'm speaking in this room to, to my knowledge, a, a bunch of people who are non-Jewish according to the flesh, okay? So Gentiles from the earth who have trusted in Christ, if that refers to you, what we're called like the wild olive tree, like that one back in the wilderness that nobody's been tending, nobody's been caring for, hasn't been fertilized, hasn't been husbanded, a wild branch out there. God's taking rebellious, boastful twigs, not bearing fruit, and he is grafting them into a tree that he tends and cares for. So, uh, and, and to show that I'm um, not stretching the text too far here, I'm not just making this up. Look down to verse 24. He says, uh, for if you Gentile Christians were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature. Why is it contrary to nature? Because that's not what people do. Pe people don't do take unprosperous branches and put them on their good tree. They do the opposite. Sometimes they would take a, a branch off of the cultivated tree and go bring it to a tree out in the woods because then they could go out there and get some harvest off of it. God is doing the opposite. God is taking unfruitful branches from the nations and he's grafting them into the tree of his people. Why would he do that? The answer is God has chosen to set his love on undeserving souls, branches that do not deserve to be loved and cared for, and he is bringing them into his tree anyway. Part of the point that we're supposed to see is it doesn't make sense according to the flesh. You and I were not bearing all kinds of beautiful, wonderful, holy fruit. And God said, boy, I need him. We were rebellious, boastful twigs producing rotten olives. And God said, I'm going to love her anyway. 
I am going to take him as my own. And he brings us into this tree that he now cares for. Part of what we're supposed to see is, it's running all through the text, grace, grace, grace. So that's the metaphor. Now, second subpoint, letter B, the broken branches. Look at verse 17 there. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off. Now, who, who is that referring to? Well, this would be referring to physical Israelites, okay? Those of the bloodline who do not trust in Christ. They do not receive him as Messiah and King. They are broken off of the tree. Now, one of the things, let me caution you in, is um, we got to be careful when the Bible gives us illustrations, metaphors, and even parables. We're supposed to stay within the bounds of what the, tr what the metaphor is supposed to teach. So when the Bible gives a metaphor, um, it's supposed to instruct us on maybe just one or a set of truths. And if we start going outside of that, we can start going into crazy territory, okay? So sometimes when people are explaining parables, they start to talk about what the buttons on the man's coat means and stuff, okay? Like we're not supposed to push past the boundaries, okay? There are certain truths that are supposed to be taught. And so what I mean to say is, don't go thinking things like, okay, okay, well, does that mean that like Israelites are born saved? They're attached to the tree? No, no, no. Don't go there. You're pushing past the boundaries of the metaphor. In the metaphor, physical Israel has been attached to the tree, but by, because of unbelief in the Lord Jesus, because of a refusal to embrace him by faith, they are broken off. Don't try to surmise and figure out, well, when are they broken off? No, no, no. That's pushing past the boundaries of the illustration that's used there. What it means is that Israel, having been chosen by God for special things and having been given all of these graces of the scriptures, raised in the knowledge of the covenants and what God had done in the past should be first in line to love the Lord Jesus. It's like they were just on the tree. And God says, if they reject my son, they are broken off of the vine. It, one of the things to just clearly see again, there is no eternal life apart from personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are attached to Christ, you are attached to the tree of God's people. Letter C, the grafted branches. Look at verse 17 again. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentile Christians, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And he goes on from there. Now, we've already kind of been referencing this, so I don't think more explanation is given. Gentiles who receive Christ by faith are grafted into this tree of the true people of God. But over and over again, one of the things you notice about the way that scripture describes what we need is so different than the way the world thinks of religion. The world thinks of religion as something like, you know, I, I need to start doing better. I need to start being more religious. I need to start praying and going to church more. When over and over again, when the Bible describes what we need, it, it is Jesus saying, you are dead. You need to be raised to life. Okay. You're a part of a tree that is going to be hacked down and used for firewood. You need off the tree and you need put on a new tree. Death Life. It's not self-improvement, okay? It is resurrection. It is new birth. This is what every soul needs. If you have never turned to Christ, you do not just need to be better and do more religion. You need to be born again. There is a literal miracle that you need to happen within you. Trust in Christ, believe on him, turn to him, call out to Christ and God will do this miracle. One more thing to just also notice 
is that the text also says that Jewish people who are broken off the tree can be grafted in again. Look at verses 23 and 24. And they also referring to Israelites, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. For if you, Gentile Christian, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches, okay, physical Israelites, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, uh, letter D here, the support of the roots. Uh, Look at verse 17 again, as he refers to that when we are grafted in, the last phrase, we become partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. You notice later in the text that he talks about the fact that uh, you Gentiles, you do not support the roots, but the root supports you. So what does this mean? What is this referring to? Well, we go back again to these roots of the nation of Israel, the origins, the, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs that God saved, the covenants that he gave, the scriptures that he gave uh, to this people. You think about the development of history, redemptive history, as God was unfolding his plan to eventually lead about to the, uh, the coming of Christ All of that would be these roots. And the text says that they support us. There there is a way in which we are blessed by the roots. So, So how is that the case that the roots support and help us? Here we are 2000 years from the time of Christ. Well, I think we could say a couple of categories. One would be some technical ways that we have been helped. So even if we don't even think about it, what is God has done with Israel and things they went through led the way for us to benefit, but then also some subjective ways that we are encouraged and strengthened by those roots. So so, so consider first some of these like technical ways. It is a fact that we stand on the shoulders of uh, Israelites who came before us. So so similar to how you might think of medicine or technology, you know, there, there was a day that people died of strep throat. And it caused them to go on a quest to find remedies. And so here we are, we're born today and we have this remedy available. And I don't know about you, but I've you know, never paused to just in gratitude about the ability to get over that because other people suffered before us. We stand on their shoulders and we benefit from something that you and I did not produce. We did not invent. We did not create this. There are ways that what Israel has gone through has benefited and blessed us. If Joseph had not suffered in Egypt, the bloodline of Israel would have died in the famine. If the book of Judges had not occurred in history, the world would not have been made ready uh, for the coming of Christ. If God had not made the covenant with David, you just go through all of these things, the, the, the hundreds, the thousands of details in the development of history where God brought about finally the day that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. If those things had not happened, if Israel had not suffered and gone through those things, we would not have been able to receive the invitation to come to Christ. But it's also the case, speaking of the subjective part here, that their history has produced a a spiritual heritage. And and, and back when we were um, in chapter nine and we looked at verses four and five, I think I said some of these exact same things because we looked at that heritage in that section there. But when you own the identity of a heritage, what does it do to you? It emboldens you. It strengthens you. You know, so take as an example, an evil example. Let's imagine a man who had had been born into a family that had generations of drug running and outlaws. And the family was proud of it. And there came a day whenever, you know, he was in his early teenage years that he heard stories about his, his grandparents running from the law and things. And he, was, he became proud of it himself. And he, he owned that identity. He said, that's who I am. That's my people. What, what does that do to him? Well, it emboldens him. It sends him down that path of that identity even stronger. 
We'll now take an opposite kind of example. Let's say that there were someone here that you had a long lineage of godliness in your family. Let's say you had three generations of missionaries. And maybe you had a great, great grandfather who died for the sake of the gospel. And one day when you were 13 years old, your, your, your parents told you the story of this great, great grandpa and a tingle went up your spine and you said, that's my people, that that's who I am. That's my identity. What does that do? It emboldens you, strengthens you. You want to own that and you want to live that. Well, Christian, God has given us a deep and rich spiritual heritage through the nation of Israel. And then here's the big reveal. It has been made yours. It has been made your heritage. Moses, he's your great, 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 great. Go back a lot of greats uncle or something. David, he's, he's yours. Now, uh, yeah, I, I've always just kind of thought of that kind of obvious, you know, like these, these, these heroes, Esther, Ruth, you know, you go down the line, they're ours. We claim them as Christians, but I can imagine somebody could say, why do you think they're yours? They were Jewish. You're not. Here's the basis. The basis is Romans 11. You have been brought into the same tree that Moses and David and Ruth and Esther and Joshua, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that they were a part of it. That's your heritage. And it is meant to embolden us and strengthen us. Remember, Christian, you, you don't support the roots. The roots support you. Well, moving on to letter E here as we continue and then start to see some of the application that this is meant to bring. Letter E is humble yourself and fear. This is, there is an effect that all of this is supposed to have. Gentile Christian, we need to remember where we fit in all of this. We've been brought into a tree. We've been brought into a people. Gentile Christian, we're not the big dogs. We're not the spotlight and all the people are not here because of us and for us. We're not the great leaders. We didn't start this. We came to the game late. We arrived after it begun. There is something that has been happening for a long, long time and we come late to this. You and I stand on their shoulders. They endured pain in order to serve you. They went through experiences that benefit us. You and I were off in the wilderness, rebellious, boastful, unfruitful twigs. And God has brought us into an inheritance. He has adopted us into a family. He has put us on the trunk of a tree that he cares for. And the point of this is that there is an effect this is supposed to have on our hearts. Humility fear and worship. Humility, fear, and worship. Lowliness, trembling, and exultation. Look, look how we're shown this in verse 18. He says, do not be arrogant, Gentile Christian. In verse 19, the thought continues. He says, now somebody could say, so this would be a Gentile Christian with a conceited thought. Well, hey, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And you notice what he says there, verse 20, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Christian, fear. Our salvation is supposed to humble us to the dust. N knowing our situation knowing where we came from, knowing what we've been made a part of, knowing what I deserve, the hell that I rightfully ought to receive, knowing all of that ought to purge the church from all of our presumptuousness and that arrogant flippancy. There is a kind of light-hearted waltzing into holy places Dancing where angels do not dare to tread kind of attitude that exists in the church today. And it is a stench in the nostrils of the God who is so holy. Angels will not look on his face. 
The God who is holy, holy, holy. That there exists in our day a kind of attitude of, of course God loves me. What's not to love? Kind of attitude that exists. Understanding these kinds of things of where we came from, the hell that we deserve, the grace that's been given, where we stand in all of this, it is meant to cleanse that out of us. It is meant to produce a reverent humility that worships God, rejoicing, delighting, exulting, amazed, amazed that I would get to be saved, amazed that I would get to have eternal life. Knowing the gospel is supposed to produce this. And then you notice verse 21. Again, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Gentile Christian, you need to remember that there were branches natural to the tree that were broken off. Let us not grow conceited. And let us not think that now I can now, you know, now that I've prayed the prayer and I'm saved, saved because I say that I'm saved, that now I can just coast. Now I can just live how I please because, hey, you know, Jesus forgives. Do not grow. Listen, people died who were a part of the original tree. And when I say people died, I mean eternally. There are souls in hell who had a more of a right to the tree than you or I do. If you have been grafted in by faith in Christ, do not say to yourself in an arrogant presumptuousness, now I can just coast on through and do as I please. No, you stand by your faith, fear, fear. Now let me address a question with that because maybe some of your minds are asking it. Somebody could say, well, pastor, that kind of sounds like he's teaching you can lose your salvation. Why should I fear if I am saved? Well, understand this is not undoing passages that tell us about justification and the fact that we are uh, safe in Christ. But I want you to hear me very carefully. Do not block me out. Do not block me out. It just happens too often that by regurgitating a little cliche that is oftentimes misunderstood, people swipe away the places from the Bible that give warnings we are supposed to hear. And the little cliche that is regurgitated over and over again is, once saved, always saved. Now the Bible teaches once truly saved, always saved. It does teach that. But the Bible does not teach that just because you say that you're saved, always saved. The Bible does not teach eternal security of the professor. It teaches eternal security of the believer. And one of the things, you know, this, this, this doctrine needs to be preached just close to the top of the list of things in the American church. And there are just few truths more ignored and more denied. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who... How does, it, how does it end? Because people like to finish the sentence in a lot of ways that they choose. I talked to somebody even here recently who says that he has visions and so he knows that he's right with God. Is that what the Bible says? No, right after what I'm about to quote here, Jesus said, there are many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and in your name do miracles? And I will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That's how the verse ends. That's not teaching salvation by works. It's consistent with salvation by faith, but your works demonstrate who you actually are. The people who are truly of faith, they are the ones who will go on to bear some fruit because they're connected to a tree that is giving them life. If you have life flowing into you, fruit will be produced. And this is one of the truths that is most neglected and denied. Of course, it's ignored by those who you know, just essential or essential universalists that just basically say everybody who goes to church is okay. We all worship the same God. You've heard that kind of nonsense. But listen to me, this doctrine is also denied by a whole lot of Baptists who regurgitate the cliche. It just happens so often that someone will come to a passage and the Bible has dozens of these 
stern warnings. Take heed, Christian. And they'll kind of look at it and be like, well, I don't know what that means, but once saved, always saved. Turn the page. Fear, Christian. Fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. L listen to me. If Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land, don't just be kidding yourself and throwing things out there, imagining that God's up there smiling, shaking his head, going, those mischievous kids. Fear, Chris, do not be conceited, but fear. Take heed, take heed. And that leads us into this, this last one here. Letter F, behold the Lord. Look at verse 22, behold then. This is one of my favorite statements from the entire Bible. It just, it gives me chills. Sometimes it brings me to tears. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Christian, you need to know both of these things, the love and the wrath, the mercy and the justice, the kindness and Severity. Our day knows all about the love, the kindness, morphs it into something ungodly, calls it nice, but knows nothing of the wrath, the justice, and the severity of God. Let me ask you this question. Why does this metaphor matter? We're given this metaphor here, and I'm saying we need to know it. Why do we need to know it? What is so important about it? Well, there are half a dozen truths or so about Israel's salvation, what God's doing among the nations of the earth that we need to know. And understand, every detail, every truth of the Bible that we either don't know or don't believe, there's a consequence to it. Somehow it's going to affect us negatively. But I want to tell you the bigger picture. It's the bigger picture that is behind everything that God has done. It's the bigger picture behind every single verse of the Bible. Every single verse of the Bible is teaching you something, but it is pointing to something bigger. It is pointing to that great purpose for which all things exist. Every verse of the Bible is leading you to know God, to know God. The point, the point of all of it is that God is revealing himself so that we would see who he is, see his glory in all of his kindness, all of his severity, and we would respond accordingly. To respond accordingly is to respond in humility and fear and worship and love and delight and adoration and obedience and service. It is to know God and in knowing God, we will respond accordingly. Jesus said whenever he was praying for Christians, he said to the Father, this is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's how Jesus summarized eternity, to know God and to know Christ. Know God. And so I want, I want you to see this. We've said this numerous times. You need to deeply know the gospel. You need to know Romans chapters 1 through 11. You need to know them deeply because it is an explanation of the gospel. And as God shows you the gospel, what he has done in Christ, you are seeing him. You come to know God through knowing the gospel. We see all of his attributes on display. We see who he truly is and not the imagined version of the idols of the mind. We come to see him in his kindness and his severity. In our day, there is nearly a complete ignorance of God's severity. And I want you to consider what that does. If there is no understanding of God's severity, what is the effect? Everyone thinks they're okay. Everyone thinks they're fine. They justify their sin. They break the law of Christ knowingly and they say, God understands. When everyone thinks they are okay, what is the effect? There is no fear of God. If there is no fear of God, what is the effect? Every man does what is right in his own eyes. If every man does what is right in his own eyes, what do you get? Do you remember where that line comes from? 
It's from the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one of the darkest books in the entire Bible. And do you know why it is one of the darkest books in the entire Bible? Because it's a record of the history of a day where every man did what was right in his own eyes. How do you get America 2021? Every man does what is right in his own eyes. If we do not know God, listen to me, it has real world effects. Cities burn when the people don't know God. Know God and respond accordingly. Every verse of the Bible is showing you God. You have nothing you need more than to know God in truth. As we study through the gospel, we come to know him and we respond accordingly. God is revealing his glory through the gospel. So Christian, Christian, behold God's kindness. That means, by the way, to consider deeply, meditate, give time and attention and energy to understanding the mercy, the love, the kindness of God. Know the kindness of God and weep in gratitude. Add it to your prayer list. Ask that God would bring you to a deeper understanding of grace, of his mercy, of his kindness. And then Christian, behold God's severity and pray that God would bring about the right effect there, that you would fear him, <laughs> that you would have an understanding of his um, uh, unapproachable holiness, that you would have reverence for God. And to you who have never turned to Christ to be saved, for whatever reason, maybe before you today, you've never known you were supposed to, but we, we are telling you the message of the scripture. I know it's totally different than everything you hear in the world, but the Bible says you are not okay. You need to be brought from death to life. There's a tree you're a part of and that tree is going to be cut down. John the Baptist said the ax is already laid at the root of the tree. It is going to be hacked and it is going to be made into firewood. You really are going to hell. If you are not made right with God, I know that's different than what you hear. God has spoken from heaven. Believe him. If you have never turned to Christ, you've been a recipient of God's kindness your entire life. Every single time your heart beats, that is God's kindness sustaining your life. Every breath, every bite of food. God has given you a lot of physical kindness, but you need to know this. You are not under his eternal kindness right now. You are under his severity. And there really is a hell. And God really does warn from heaven and call you, welcome you, come. Come and be delivered from that. But it is only in Christ. You are under God's severity. Don't kid yourself. If Moses was not allowed into the promised land, if God destroyed the world in the flood, if God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, if God sent the nation of Babylon against Jerusalem to lay siege in an act of judgment so there would be a famine and the people were forced to eat dung, do not kid yourself and say, I'm sure in the end it's all going to be okay. It will not. You are under severity. And you need to come into his kindness. Come to Christ. We plead with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in him. Bow the knee of reverence to him. Call out to him and pray that God would save you. And scripture gives the promise, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you want to talk to somebody about that before you leave, come find me. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, your mercy. We behold your kindness and we are amazed, amazed that you would love us who are so unlovely and did not deserve it. But Lord, we also consider your severity and we're brought to fear. And I ask, oh God, that you'll work that in our souls, that our thoughts would be right, that we would reverence you as you are worthy of. Help us to walk out these doors and live as people um, who, who respond to you accordingly. And any who has not yet turned, we pray, oh God, that you will draw them to yourself today. Please give us your blessing. Uh, give us grace in the fellowship we're about to have here, oh God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Lord bless you. Oh,
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.